0: Okay, welcome to the latest episode of the Simulated Universe podcast, where we explore the boundaries between science, science fiction, and spirituality. Really excited about our guest today, Tom Campbell, who is a physicist by training and who um, did research at the Monroe Institute way back in the 70s and is also the author of My Big Toe his big theory of everything uh, which is a great book that I highly recommend I'm excited to have him on the podcast because when I first wrote my uh, article about the simulation hypothesis a few years ago people started to say hey you need to talk to Tom Campbell he's been talking about this stuff for a while and so eventually I picked Mm -hmm. up his book and ended up interviewing him for um, you know for uh, my book as well so uh, welcome Tom thanks so much for joining me on, on the podcast
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, Riz. It's uh, my pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, you've got a lot of uh, details laid out in your books, but I'm wondering if maybe for those who may not be familiar with your work, you could maybe tell a little bit of background and and how you arrived at the conclusions you did. I mean, I think your book was published in 2003, but you've probably been thinking about this stuff a lot longer than that.
1: Yes, yes. Well, it – I guess the, the the where I am now uh, seriously got started um, while I was in graduate school in 1970, and I learned to meditate. I saw a poster on the uh, on the physics department uh, door, and it said, "Learn to meditate. Special introductory price for students: twenty five dollars or twenty dollars, something like that." This was a TM, Transcendental Meditation. And it went, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, it said, get by with less sleep. And when you're a graduate student, and I was doing experimental physics, so it means I was working with big, you know, accelerator machines and other things. And when those machines work, you just keep taking data, even if you stay up, you know, for a couple of days in a row. So this idea of getting uh, by with less sleep hit me as a very attractive idea. So I learned to meditate. So now I, I'm in my, I'm in my mid twenties here about this point and meditation was a natural for me. I found, uh, it very easy to do and, uh, it, I indeed could get by on less sleep and it was a, a good way to relax and get some extra energy. So I started meditating and within, and wh-
0: where, where were you in graduate school?
1: Um, this was uh university of Virginia. Got it. In uh, graduate school. And, uh, I'd already uh, picked up a master's degree and I was working on my PhD at this point. So anyway, I found out about three or four months into this meditation that I could debug uh, my software, uh, my code that I was writing for my thesis work uh, in a meditation state much more efficiently, many times faster and and easier than I could if I actually was sitting down at a desk and looking at, at my program. Now these are the this is the old days of computing where I had uh, you know four or five boxes with like two thousand cards in a box they're punch cards and <laughs> it's really hard to debug in this situation because yeah they didn't it, have they,
0: interactive debuggers back then did they
1: <laughs> no they did not and debugging was a real serious thing now the computer tells you where the bugs are you know it's a it's a lot different but then. All you knew is, you, and if all you got was maybe one or two, if you were really lucky, runs a week out of the computer, because there were no personal computers, there was only one computer for the university, and all the sciences and, and you know, and the math people and the physics and the chemistry, everybody used that same computer, it was one university computer, and that computer is probably about as much computing power as your cell phone has now, you know, it. the... Uh, it took up a whole room, a very large room, but it really wasn't very much. And they were they were bragging at the time because they had something like uh, oh I don't know something like ten or ten or twenty kilobits of, of, of uh, memory that they were working in. <laughs> and uh, right. you know the whole and I have a, an idea of a megabit of of RAM was was unheard of. That was way more than they thought anybody would possibly need. So anyway, that's the computing environment. So debugging was really hard to do, because it may not even be an error in your code. It may just be that the card punch was off a fifth of a millimeter, and it didn't read properly. So it was very difficult. So I could get you in a meditation state, pull up my, my code, and let it just kind of wind by. And in my mind, I had an intention that any code line that wasn't operative, wasn't doing what it's supposed to do, I would see it as red. So I'd let it scroll by and I'd see something red go by. So I'd rewind, back it up and read that line because I wrote every line of that code. So I was very familiar with it and I knew right where I could find it. And sure enough, those things that came up in my mind as as red were errors, were things that needed to be fixed. So suddenly I got really good at debugging code and other other <laughs> the graduate students started asking me for help, you know. And that sort of thing, but uh, I couldn't really help them that much. I could help them some, but I couldn't do this for them because I didn't know their code. You know, I couldn't just look at it and say, oh, I know where that is. You know, I know what that line of code is. It didn't work as well. It worked for me better than it did for them, although I could be some help to them because I knew the code intimately and I could bring it up like that in my mind. Code that I didn't know was harder.
0: A meditative debugging technique, right? Yes,
1: Exactly. (laughs) So now I'm a physicist, and when I get this, it completely blows me away because I knew it was real because I was really debugging my code. And I knew that there was no physical explanation. So that told me that there was another component, another dimension to reality that I didn't know anything about. And, you know, what physics is really is it's modeling reality. That's what physics is. It's coming up uh mostly with mathematical models of reality, how reality works. So here was another whole piece of reality that uh, I didn't even know existed. So that got me very interested in meditation and uh, things of the mind, things that you could do with your mind. And then it was only maybe a year or so later that I happened to run into Bob Monroe, the guy who wrote Journeys Out of the Body, Far Journeys and Ultimate Journey, He had just written the first book, Journeys Out of the Body, and he wanted to study consciousness because he also had experiences that he knew were real, and he wanted to turn the process into science. He didn't want to be just a weird old guy that had strange experiences. He wanted (laughs) to to study it and understand it. He, He really was looking to legitimize his experience so it wasn't just... Strange stuff, but it was a legitimate experience that, uh, you know, you could have some, some science about. So I started uh, working with Bob Monroe in this laboratory to study consciousness. And now we're up to about 1972. And my job as the physicist was theory, to understand it. And our, my, my deal with Bob was that I would work in his lab for free if he would teach me to do what he did, if he could help me have that out-of-body experience, and he did, so within six months or a year or so, I was going out-of-body whenever I wanted to, on demand, and, and I started. Were the, you
0: uh, doing the hemi-sync or the binaural beats to do that, yeah, or were you doing there it without that?
1: <laughs> yeah, there was no binaural beats, and there was no hemi-sync. Okay. Uh, uh, myself, and a, an electrical engineer that uh, worked with me, uh, we worked together on this, And actually, that electrical engineer, Dennis Mennerick, was the one who first came up with the binaural beat idea. And he saw it on a 1960-something old uh, Scientific American. That's where he Mm. pulled it up from. And we tried it out, and it worked. And after that, uh, a few years later, after a lot of experimenting, Bob uh, got a patent on it and called it HemiSync. But the binaural beat... uh, was very effective but i learned not on binaural beats but basically he did pipe in some sound it was mostly relaxation sounds mm-hmm. surf surfy kind of sounds with a four hertz um beat in it that um, it was it was relaxing and it, it helped some it was it masked outside noises but it also that four hertz kind of encourages you to to get into a a theta state, which is where your EEG, your brainwaves, are mostly outputting about four hertz. And that was good. But the binaural beat was a lot more effective. So I didn't learn on binaural beats, but kind of Dennis and I uh, invented them as we went, which eventually turned into hemisync. Mm. Anyhow, so I started studying uh, in consciousness. I started to go into these altered states of consciousness and do experiments. We, we learned that we could affect things, just as Bob had done. You, know, you can affect things from that state that actually alter or modify the physical state, physical reality. Like so what, after, would be, what
0: would be an example of that if you did something in that state that modified physical reality?
1: Well, you could, um, you could do all of the things that fall under, uh, say, remote viewing. You Hmm. also do all the things that fall under the big heading of, say, healing, where you could modify, you know, reality with your intent. You Hmm. could look at probable futures and you could. um, You could know things you could come up with information that just otherwise wasn't available to you.
0: Hmm. And would you see those? those those... Go ahead those probable futures that like would you see them visually as in a movie screen or would you see them played out?
1: Well, how well, how did you experience could, that? <laughs> you could do it either way. You could do it the way Bob had us doing it in the, in the lab first was he had us reading newspaper headlines. So he said, look at, look at what the headlines going to be in next week's newspaper next Monday. What's the headline going to be? Or you know, two weeks from now or a month from now, he gave us a, some time period and said, You know, just look at the headline and tell me what it is. So we did that for a while, which was um, a little different. But then got into where you could you could look at it like you were looking at a movie. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you would just get information, just you'd get what's not really words. It's telepathic. So you get thoughts, you get ideas in chunks rather than actually language most of the time. And you would just know that something in the future was going to happen. So that sometimes worked. And it could be anything. It could be a trivial thing. So mm-hmm. it worked that way. And you could, you could see it like, like you're watching it and see something happen just like you were watching a movie. And then I learned later, much later, I guess probably five or ten years later, that you could actually get into that probable future and interact with it. Not like watching a movie, but like being in the movie and watching it both at the same time. So those are all possible. But anyway, the key thing that I learned is, well, I learned a lot of key things. But one of the important things I realized was that you could modify things in this reality, like heal someone. Mm. And, of course, you have to do this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. It all turns out to be you know, probability and statistics in the sense that if you go heal somebody and they get better, well, they may have just gotten better anyway. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything. So you have to do it and repeat it enough times that your probability of that you're actually doing something gets real high. They call that in statistics, uh, the uh, um, oh, what is it? It's uh, not the confidence statistic is the way you do it, but uh, now I, I lose the word for it in my right. mind, but, but I, uh, I know
0: what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, you get if you are better than than uh, you know 99, 99.9. If you're at the nine, you know the 99.99 that you're actually doing something as opposed to it just randomly happening. Happening. Then that's pretty good. But you need to be, or if we look at the other way, if you're like a, a 0.01. One in a hundred that you could do that just by luck, you know, by randomness. Right. Then, uh, then it's pretty good. But we found out after a while that we were like one in, you know, 10,000, one in 100,000 because we had so many, uh, so much experience over, over uh, the best part of a decade that if you sum all that together, it was probably one in a million that we could have done the things we did that just by because we were lucky good guessers. So <laughs> statistical significance, that's the word I was looking for. You have to have statistical significance. So anyway, so we did that, and I knew that I could affect the physical reality. So that tells you logically that if from consciousness you can affect the physical reality, but physical reality does not modify consciousness. You can't change things here that then changes things in the, phys- in the non-physical, in the consciousness world. So that told me that consciousness was fundamental, more fundamental than the physical uh, reality. It wasn't derived within the physical reality. Consciousness is not a product of the brain. Consciousness is something else. It's uh, as uh, uh, Dr. Edward Fredkin, a physicist who uh, also came to the conclusion that we're living in a virtual reality, said in his words that that uh, this reality, this this uh, physical reality that's virtual has to come from someplace else other than this physical reality. uh, A a simulation doesn't compute itself. It has to be computed outside of itself. And he just called that place other that we, um, it must be computed in other and that other is any place other than here (laughs) in in the physical reality. He didn't do a lot of definition about just what other was, but, it had to be someplace else. So I agreed with him that it looked like this other was the was the thing that computed it, which is that a higher level of existence, you might say, than the virtual reality that it that it computes. So that was a that was a big deal. And as I was able to do the the healing and the remote viewing and, and getting information and having conversations with beings, you know, both physical and non physical, things that made sense over really thousands of experiences and trying to always find evidence. You know, if you just have a chit chat with some phys- non-physical being and it's just chit chat, well, there's no evidence there. But right. With,
0: and people could but, say it's a dream or.
1: Right. You, know. you know, made it up. There's no evidence. So yeah, we always, while we were at Monroe's, we're always looking for evidential things. So you'd want to find out something that you could then go, study and look up and see if that indeed was a fact or not a fact, something that you didn't know. So that was the key. So I found out that, that I could do experiments while I was there. I could get into the state, um, and change a variable because now I'd gotten in and out of this state hundreds of times. We were working like 20 hours a week. So it was like a halftime job. Hmm. And 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 were you still uh,
0: a graduate student at this I'm, point, or?
1: I'm well, no. Now I'm working. I'm working 40 hours a week, actually more like 50 hours a week, uh, at a at a job. And uh, i had okay. gotten out of graduate school by then. And it, actually, i had only been in my job a, a short time when I had this connection with uh, Bob Monroe. So it was shortly after I got my first job that I met Bob. So anyway, I'm I'm working. Yeah. Uh, you know, Forty to fifty hours a week, and I'm spending twenty hours a week with Bob Monroe, and I'm sleeping like two or three hours a day, and uh, and that's about all. But it was a very compact time that was very, very interesting. Anyhow, yeah. and, anyhow. And did
0: you did you discuss any of that with your colleagues, either in academia or professionally?
1: Well. Well, just just one. And that was Dennis. That okay. where I worked. That's where Dennis Menorick also worked. Like I said, I was a physicist. He was a double E. We were in different departments and different groups. But we both uh, we both were interested in meditation. And and uh, he also had had some some uh, interesting things happen in his own consciousness. So we wanted to go research it. We wanted to find out how to how does it work? And of course, we thought in the beginning maybe Bob was just going to be hokey, and maybe it really wasn't going to mount anything. And it, you know, but we wanted to find out. So we were open-minded enough to let's give it a try and see what happens. So I would go into these altered states, and I would change a variable: the way I went in, the state I was in, how I approached it, uh, even to the matter of what I had to eat, you know, the the day before, just all the variables that I could imagine that would that would maybe change things. And found out what actually did change things, what variables uh, had some effect, and then once you understand how they had a, an effect, then you could do sensitivity analysis on them. You could change them just a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and see how things worked. So I ended up with a, a, a long list of facts of consciousness, and these are facts. These are my facts. You know, I'm, other people won't necessarily agree with these because they're they're out of my experience so my, one of my key things I say is if it's not your experience it can't be your truth so my I had this set of facts about consciousness and of course I'm a physicist so I have this other set of facts about the physical world and I spent the next 35 years trying to combine those two under one understanding you know one and that's theory of everything, one toe. So that if you had just one basic understanding, could you derive both sets of facts, the consciousness facts and the other? So I started writing my book to be a theory of consciousness. We have lots of theories of physics, you know, got <laughs> a lot of physics out there. What we don't have is a good theory of consciousness. So I wrote these books to be a, to be theory of consciousness, and. I realized because the, the, the consciousness must be primary and the physical, being a virtual reality, must be secondary, I knew that I should be able to take the principles that define consciousness and derive the physics from those. Uh, but it was a couple of years, maybe a year and a half or two years after I published my books in 2003, that I get that big aha moment where I actually saw how to do that. I realized that I could explain the quantum weirdness in the double slit and the quantum weirdness in all the other quantum experiments logically and rationally, so that it wasn't weird. That and I could do it starting from the facts of consciousness. I could take consciousness and derive the physics. And I also then said, "Wow, if I can do quantum mechanics, what about relativity? Relativity." Uh, centers around the idea that speed of light's a constant. If you take that away, then relativity totally unwinds. That's <laughs> that's a key idea there. And, and nobody really understood why the speed of light should be a constant. And then with this idea that I got from, from consciousness, uh, I could explain that logically, why it has to be uh, the upper speed limit, why you're not going to take anything physical and make it move faster than the speed of light that you just cannot because the very fabric of the way reality is made the way the virtual reality is made is that you cannot move more than one pixel distance for every pixel time and that's as fast as things can move through a virtual reality contiguously you know where you go contiguous through space where you're not teleporting uh, so in any case so once I had that down I started looking for other uh, paradoxes in physics and in neuroscience and other places. And as I found them, I was able to come up with logical reasons based on my understanding of consciousness of these paradoxes that were basically in science. And
0: hmm. So what would be an example up? of one of those paradoxes?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the double slit would be an experiment. It's, you know, why should, why should yeah. particles, you know, uh, what, uh, sort themselves into a different, into a, um, wave pattern, you know, when there's no forces on them, what moves them around? You know, physics would say, if you have a particle, it goes in a straight line, unless it's acted on by some external force that goes way back to Newton, but that's not what happens. Particles have no external forces, but they just seem to rearrange themselves, uh, on screen in a very particular, uh, uh, pattern, sometimes called a, a wave pattern or a diffraction pattern um, or a uh, interference pattern. So, right. that, so that's a mystery. We have things called the Zeno effect, which is if you have an atom that's in state uh, A and in, say, a minute, it would decay to state B. If you measure that state and you find it, it is in an A. And then if you measure it again, say, in 10 seconds, it's still going to be in A. And you can measure it again in 10 seconds; it's still going to be an A. And you can do that all day. Ten, every 10 seconds, measure it, and it never gets out of A. It's always A. You see, and that was uh, that was a paradox. Why doesn't it ever decay? And it seems our measurement resets it each time. The clock is reset back to zero, and uh, from each measurement, it takes that that minute before it. Let's say it, it typically has a has a 50-50 chance of, of decaying. So, so you're that,
0: saying in physics it, that gets reset. So it'll it'll take another minute or whatever
1: to exactly. So every time you measure it, causes a reset, and that's a paradox. Why should that happen? Why should the measurement of the state change the way that the that the you know particle or that the atom is functioning? And so that, and there's, there's lots more. Where does, uh, where does time come from? Where does charge come from? Where does mass come from? Where does space come from? What are all these things that are the fundamentals in physics? And everything else in physics is built out of these things. You know, space, mass, charge. Um, anyhow, all of those things are the fundamentals of physics. And physicists just say, well, they just are because they are. There is no no explanation for them where time comes from and where space comes from. Well, once you have a a view of this being a a virtual reality and consciousness is the computer, then it's trivial where they come from. They're computed. They're they're mathematics. They're equations.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So assuming we live in a virtual reality, uh, how would you explain – you know the double slit experiment and uh, one of the things we've talked about on this podcast is the delayed choice experiment right where the yeah. choice is made in the past but it seems like it's not made until the observation happens which could be a thousand years in the future if it's light coming from you know a distant star around a black hole so so right. how would you explain you know, those within your, your theory of a virtual world?
1: Okay, well, they're they're uh, actually pretty easy to explain. First, I have to say that in my model, consciousness is an information system. So okay. you have to understand that, and it's digital information system. Consciousness is the computer. Uh, we live in a virtual reality. We are, or this physical universe is a virtual reality, and we're not our bodies. We're not our, our uh, flesh and blood bodies. We are a piece of... This consciousness system, an individuated piece of consciousness, and we have logged on to this avatar that we call our body, and we, consciousness, are making all the choices for this avatar. Okay, so that's my sense of a virtual reality, which is a little different than the sense of virtual reality that a lot of people have.
0: Yeah. In fact, you know, one of the reasons I was drawn to your work is that, you know, I like to make the distinction between the NPC version of the simulation argument where everybody is just AI running on a computer and the RPG version where, or the Matrix version where you exist outside and your consciousness is playing a role or an avatar inside the game. And it sounds like that's closer to your model.
1: Yes, that's closer to my model. Um, the difference there would be that, that uh, my model also specifies that consciousness is the computer. So, so this, this what I call the larger consciousness system, a piece of that larger consciousness system can be configured as the computer, and another piece of that larger consciousness system can be configured as you, as an individuated unit of consciousness. So all of it's part of the larger consciousness system. And there's reasons for why the system would do that and why would it make a virtual reality. And, and, you know, my book covers all that uh, to make that uh, to make that rational. But just to answer your question about the, the, the physics and how do I answer these these questions about double slit and about delayed eraser. And that is that if you are if you are the consciousness making choices for an avatar, then. Just like our virtual reality games, if that's the case, then the whole virtual reality exists only in the minds of the players. Okay, so think about the Sims. What is the computer, what is the server that serves up the Sims doing when there is absolutely no players? It's doing nothing. It doesn't have anything to do. You see, if there's no players, it's not generating any reality. That reality is generated in the minds of a player. So as soon as a player logs on, then the computer starts sending information to that player and getting information from that player, and that player gets gets the information and interprets it to be the, the Sims game, the that virtual reality. But that virtual reality is just that that player's interpretation of the data it gets. Now, what's the data that you get when you're playing Sims? Well, it's a bunch of data from the server that serves SIMS sent to your computer screen. And it's basically, uh, you know, a million dots of light that have intensity, color and position. That's it. That's the data you get. And you look at that data on your screen and you see, you know, rocks and rivers and houses and refrigerators and people and clothes and cars and streets. You see all of that stuff because that's how you interpret all those little dots of light. Okay so you get data you interpret the data and how you interpret that data that is the virtual reality that you're playing in so there is no virtual reality that exists by itself virtual reality exists in the mind of the player okay now Ryan, that ex- I
0: think that's very consistent you know with what I've been talking about which is that there's no shared rendering right there's only a, a rendering on everybody's individual computer but in, in this case you're saying that computer is Everybody's individual consciousness,
1: right? Right. That's exactly the case. Yeah. So now if that's the case and reality, the virtual reality only exists in the minds of the player, then if there's something that is not in the minds of any of the players, then it can't be in the virtual reality, right? It'd be someplace else. So what about the double slit? Why do we have this idea that or why does it work such that if you have information about which slit the particle goes through, then you get uh, the particles pile up behind each slit on the screen. Whereas if you don't have any information, you end up with this, this uh, well, you can call it a diffraction pattern or a wave pattern or an interference pattern. You end up with this pattern that the particles land in, a pattern not just piled up behind the slit. Well, the difference between that is having the information or not having the information. So if you don't have the information then you're going to have these particles are going to hit a, are going to hit the the uh, the screen. They're going to be in hit the screen somewhere for some reason, but there's no information that says they have to hit it behind the slit. So why would you get a diffraction pattern? Why would the, the way the system works is whenever there's an unknown, it it makes a known out of it by taking a random draw from a probability distribution of all the possibilities. That's how things are done. That's the mechanics of actually knowing when you, when you make a measurement, that's the results you get in this virtual reality. So because we have optics that had been around for 100 years previously that saw light and sent light through two slits, coherent light through two slits, and saw that wave pattern, but now these are beams of light, not individual particles, We knew that that's the way light through two slits would work. So this time, what the system does is it says the result needs to come from a diffraction uh, pattern that looks, you know, that's a probability distribution It looks like a diffraction pattern. So when that particle goes through unknown which slit, it has to land someplace. So the system reaches up, takes a random draw from that probability distribution of the possibilities. All the possibilities are constrained by that probability distribution, which, if you put it on a piece of paper, would look sort of like a, a um, uh, an interference pattern. And the system did that. It made that as the choice just because it needed a boundary value connection with optics. So that's the only choice it had. It couldn't have taken any other choice without having an inconsistency in the virtual reality. It had to pick that particular choice for the probability distribution. So that's why that works that way. Now the the idea is, when you look at this, is that why does it, you know, why is this knowledge the thing? Well as soon as you have knowledge that a particle went through this slit, now you have a probability distribution that is basically the only place it can land is, you know, behind that slit. Because you have a particle that's in this reality. You've made the measurement. So instead of that particle being just a potential particle, a virtual particle, if you will, now it's in this world because somebody measured it. It's a part of this virtual reality. Once it's part of the virtual reality, it can't do anything other than act like a particle, which is travel in a straight line. You've brought it in here. But until you bring it in here, it's still just probability. Until so you make the that measurement, that it, stays, it, it stays as probability.
0: Yeah, so the probability wave or the interference pattern means that the particle is not yet uh, materialized in this reality? Yeah, what you're right.
1: It's not in this reality because until, until somebody makes a measurement and some IUOC, some player gets the information, it's not in this reality yet. Remember, the, the, the virtual reality only exists in the minds of the players. So it's not in this reality yet. It's just a potential particle. And it isn't until it comes into this reality where a measurement is made, which is where it hits the screen that, you know, you, the system has to put a particle there. So it's not like the particle split into and interfered with itself. It's not like some of the probability goes through one slit and the other and interferes. It's none of that stuff. It's just that when it comes time for the system, To have to show something, in other words, something in this reality, like when the particle hits the screen, it has to do a random draw from a probability distribution. It picks that interference as the pattern, as the probability distribution, because that solves a boundary condition with optics. It had no other choice. It had to pick that. So that's why that works that way. It's a matter of the measurement is this measurement problem, and that's also sometimes called a measurement uh, a paradox. And that is because nothing can come into this virtual reality until a player has some data that describes it. In other words, until a measurement's made. So it's not in this reality yet. Now, we go to the delayed eraser. It's the same thing. All right, So we, we do the double slit. We collect the which way data we collect it after the particles already hit the screen so the particle hits the screen and then we collect the which way data and if that right which and way so d-
0: it's hit it's hit uh, either at location a or location b right
1: right it, it's hit, it's already hit the screen so the answer is done
0: yeah
1: okay but then we collect which way data and when we collect which way data and we find out even though the, the which way data is collected after the screen was hit that every time we know the which way data, we just get particles pile up behind the slits. And every time we don't know the which way data, we get an interference pattern. And that then made people wonder, is this something that is, um, uh, what is it, um, uh, when something ha- you know, changes back in time?
0: Right. So it's retrocausal. retrocausal. Yeah, there's
1: retrocausation. They say, well, when we do this after there's some kind of retrocausation, there's no retrocausation. That's that's nonsense. Until the data is collected. You don't know. It's not a particle yet. It's not in this reality yet. So just because something is on that screen, we don't know what it is. And it actually hasn't been placed there yet. There isn't any particle on that screen until somebody looks at the screen and sees it. Then particles have to be placed there. Because right that's then- when the data comes into the virtual realities when the when a player gets the data without the measurement, it's all just potential. It's not right. actually physical yet. So that's the thing. So then it's not that there was a uh, you know uh, electron or particles piled up behind the slits and then you, uh, you get the which-way, or then you uh, get rid of the which-way data, you erase the which-way data, and suddenly those particles that were piled up behind the hill slits turn into a, 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 a diffraction pattern. That's not the case. There was never anything there because nobody had ever measured it yet. Without measuring it, it's not part of this reality. So it's not backwards causation. Everything's moving forward in time. Right, but
0: does that mean that the history? So, you know, I like to use the example of, say, light from a distant galaxy coming to Earth and uh, the light going around a black hole that might be a thousand light years away from us to the left or to the right, and we measure it here. And so, As I understand it, the experiments are telling us that if we measure it here to see if it went to the left or right, the choice of whether it went to the left or right around the black hole is not made until we measure it here, which potentially is a thousand years beyond when that choice should have been made, right? Sure. So what does that say about history and time,
1: (laughs) I guess? Well, it really doesn't say anything other than measurement is the key thing. If If some player doesn't have the information, then it's not part of the virtual reality. So if mm-hmm. no player has that information about that particle, that particle is not a part of the virtual reality. It isn't until the measurement is made that, you know, that the particle becomes defined. Otherwise, it's is just the a history of that
0: particle. particle also defined at that point in time is just a story in a way or information?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Oh. It's a story we make up because we want things to be continuous. We want things to, if we saw a particle then it had to come from somewhere. It had to travel to get there. We have this idea of, of um, you know space and matter, and it, we have a materialistic view of the nature of reality, and that just isn't the way it is. That particle appears when somebody measures it and it appears on the screen or on the lens or on the, the film or whatever, however it's measured, it, it gets put there when the measurement is made. And it gets put there to reflect a random draw from the probability distribution of all the possibilities of how it could get there. And all of course, that's according to the rule set. These probability distributions are according to the rule set. The rule sets are physics. So it's going to have to get there in such a way that if there was a black hole there, then it would have to move over because of the gravitational pull that the black hole exerts on the photon. That's just part of the rule set. That changes the probabilities of the kind of particles you can get. So when you, when you make that measurement of that particle, then all of the things that are possible, how it could, how that particle could have gotten there, all then you take a random draw from those based on the, those probabilities. So the things that are most probable will, be, will more likely come out of that random draw. That's what you get there. So reality is created on the fly as we measure it.
0: So then what is history? Now, I've heard you talk about the historical database, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it possible that there are multiple versions of events or that different people are seeing, you know, a different, slightly different history, like the Mandela effect? Or is it a single database that gets created upon observation? I mean, how would you explain that, well, tying what we just talked about to your idea of a historical yeah. database, which is storing these events?
1: Well, there's there's two There's two different aspects of that to look at. One, remember the virtual reality only exists in the minds of the players, and it represents each individual player's interpretation of the data they receive. Okay, Two different players may get the exact same data, but they may interpret it differently. Each one of them sees reality in the way they interpret it reality for an individual is their interpretation of the data they get so there so is, is no is there
0: no consensus reality or is that what you're saying oh no, <laughs>
1: no there, there's not not at the at a great level of detail no there's no consensus reality there's only individual realities now there is consensus to the with all the things that are not uncertain OK, let's say both of us are sitting in a room, and there's an oak table in front of us with a glass uh, you know, top on it. On it, And there's a, a red book sitting on top of that table. Well, we both see the table. We both see the glass top. We both see the red book. That's because there's very little uncertainty in those things, uh, that, that they are there. So the probability of them there is very high. So when we both look there, the random draw from that probability distribution we see the same, we get the same data. Now we may interpret it differently. I may see, I may recognize the book and it may have significance to me. And I may say, oh, look, that's a book of, you know, that that's this or that. And that would, you know, maybe have some meaning for me. Whereas maybe for you, you don't recognize the book and it's just a red book sitting on the table. So in my reality, I saw, you know, a um, uh one of the rare copies of such and such a book. Um, and you didn't see that. So we have different details that we get from it. We don't all see exactly the same thing. We don't come to the same conclusions. But in general, we agree on the big stuff where there's, where there's not uh, uh, much uncertainty. So we agree that there is a red book, there is a table, the table's oak. Uh, or at least it looks like it, and you know has a glass top on it. So the, in that sense, this is a this is a multiplayer game, just like in The Sims. Uh, you can invite other Sims characters over to your house, and they yeah. will see that you have a television set in the corner, and that you have a table, and you have a refrigerator, and you know, and there's beer in the refrigerator. You'll all of that will be available to all the players. Okay, but they all look at it, get the data, and they see. They get the same data, but they may interpret the meaning or the significance of that data in different ways. That part of it's personal. But yes, they all get that same data. And this is a multiplayer game. So it's not really—it's a, a consensus reality in that it's a multiplayer game. So that's what the computer does. It feeds everybody what it is they should see when they point their, their eyes in a particular direction. But what they actually make of that data is individual. So that's one thing that's going on. But now history is a collection of you know you have several histories. You end up with a with a, um, a past probability, and then through that past probability, which is all the things that could have happened, and the probability that they that they would have, you have that. But you have a a, a thread that runs through that. It's all the things that actually did happen, which is all the choices that we've made. Tom did reach across that table, pick up the book, open it up, and look at it, okay? That would be a fact that happened, and that would then be recorded because I did that. Um, In some probable reality that I didn't actualize, I just sat there and let the book be. So there's probabilities that there are different versions of that reality, but only in probability, not in the fact that those other realities are actually lived, Uh, free will was exercised, choices were made, it's not that way at all. That, that becomes a, a, a theoretically possible, but a practically impossible process to have everything happening that can happen. It all happens at once and it all happens at the same time. That just doesn't compute. It's, it's um, not rational. So right. There so is history. There is there history. Is
0: a single history in, in in your model, or is there is There's it possible hist- there might be a couple of histories? <laughs> yeah.
1: There is a history that the computer keeps track of, right? Just like in The Sims. Yeah. There's a history that the computer keeps track of, and that is the history in the virtual reality, and that is a single history that just exists in the computer and says, "This is what happened. This is what the characters did, and these were the these were the consequences." Of it. So that's there. And you can probably if Sim saved everything, you could go back a week and you'd see, you know, exactly what happened a week ago. So that's history. If they saved it, all that, is it
0: possible that they, they rewound to a certain point in history and played it again? Like, are you a believer in the Mandela effect where people remember, you know, something happening differently, like Mandela's death well, happening in a different year or some other?
1: Yeah, that te- doesn't have to be because somebody replays and goes back. <laughs> Um, that's not a necessary, there's lots of other explanations for that. Some of them just normal and mundane, like people yep. don't have really good memories yep. and others that may be more than, than just mundane, like, uh, the system likes to stir the pot and, and open people's minds as to this reality <laughs> being a little, a little, uh, richer and more interesting than just, you know, the physical thing. So it, it likes to stir the pot sometimes. So you you could have things that are mundane or not to answer the Mandela effect. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have strong opinion about that either way. I think there's lots of possibilities. And often when there's lots of possibilities, there's more than one way to, you know, there's more than one thing going on at the same time time but yes there is a history that the computer has just like any virtual reality it can remember as much of it as it wants if it saves the the data Mm -hmm. and that's this history database that i'm talking about and that's all the things that the characters did but this whole this whole virtual reality is not a virtual reality based from the ground up it doesn't it's not the virtual reality isn't built with elementary particles building up atoms, atoms building up molecules and molecules building up everything else. It's a probabilistic virtual reality. It's mainly run on probability. Now, the rule set is mostly deterministic with some probability, some randomness thrown out because a lot of natural events are random. So you have that as the rule set. But that rule set then can grind out, can crank out in the computer the probability distributions that represent the things that we do. Because a lot of the stuff we do is very similar. You know, my, One of the examples I have, you know, if you wanted to model, say, an old Civil War cannon, uh, and you wanted to model it from the uh, uh, elementary particles up, just to have that cannon shoot one shot would probably take all the supercomputers, you know, all tied together to do that. And then they still probably couldn't do it in real time because it's very, very complex of what's going on at, a, at an atomic and molecular level. But you can reduce that cannon to just a probability distribution. You fire that cannon uh, 10,000 times, you look where the, where the round hits every time. Uh, as the barrel heats up and as it warps and everything else, you just see that. And now you can come up with, out of those 10,000 rounds, you can come up with a probability distribution based on, you know, whatever variables you kept track of when you did the uh when you did the simulation so now when you have a cannon fire in the simulation all you do is take a random draw from that probability distribution and that's where you put the ball
0: okay well let's talk a little bit more about the future i mean you're you're talking about probable places where the cannonball might come but how about big events i mean you you mentioned earlier when you were uh working with Bob Monroe that sometimes you guys saw the future. How fixed is the future and, and it, in your opinion and, or are there certain kind of parallel uh, lines that are more likely than others?
1: Uh, I, wouldn't, I they, wouldn't say parallel lines parallel is not a good word but there are it, the, the probable future is basically a database of everything that could possibly happen and the probability that it will happen so that's the probable future database. So it's all the possibilities. Okay. Now, we make choices. And as we make choices, certain things happen rather than other things. So we actualize the possibilities when we make our choices. And if we, if, if we uh, make the same choice that the system guessed that we would make, you know, that does this. Because this, this database has to be computed based on it estimating what's going to happen next. And then it takes that as real and then it's going to estimate, well, what would happen next and what would happen next? Delta T in the simulation. So it creates this database of all the possibilities. And how far so, does
0: that database extend? I mean, is it like well, caching like it, only it de- for the next few moments or is it like the next decade or the next hundred years?
1: It depends. They run that. That calculation will be run as long as it makes sense, because. You know, every time if I make a, if I say, well, what's going to happen in the next delta T? Well, delta T is only 10 to the minus 44 seconds away. So (laughs) that's a pretty easy guess. Right. For a lot of things, at least at the macro level, that's a very easy guess. Yeah. So that's not hard. And then you say, "Well, well, if that was true, then what would be for the next delta T? And and so on. So you can work it out and to where it starts to fall apart, because every time you you go out another delta T, you're assuming that the last one was right. So when if it turns out that the choices are not made, are made differently than what you presume that they would be, then you have to go back and recalculate that line out. So some things are very, very likely that are going to happen. And other things, not so much. Don't know. Could be any 10 different ways it might come out. So some things that are going to be very, very probable they'll have a high probability and you may see something 10 or 15 years out that has a very high probability but it's not going to be a detail like you know did that person need to eat an egg or, or grapefruit you know that that day you know 20 years in the future <laughs> it's not going to be that kind of detail it's going to be big things that that uh now what
0: what determines that? Are there storylines in The Sims, for example, that
1: Yeah, we're no, they're are just possibilities. Following? Let's say you take a Sims and you and yeah. a Sims has 1000 players in it right now and they're all interacting with each other in the game and you just freeze it right there. You freeze it and you say, "Okay, what what do we think is going to happen next? What all the characters are going to do? All the choices that they make? All the balls all the balls that are rolling downhill because of gravity, you know? what, what all the changes or you're going to have the next delta T. So you just project that based on all the thing you know about all the players and all the choices they've made since they've been playing the game. and well, you that. that's true
0: if you're looking at it purely from a physics perspective. But as a game designer, sometimes we would actually lay out storylines for certain characters, right? We would say, okay, this character is going to have to come against this opponent. So it's not so much just projecting forward. It's also – kind of having these bigger events that are kind of laid out in the storyline. And I'm wondering if if you think there's something like that going on, or it really well, is just a matter of our individual choices
1: that are it's determined. It's both. It's both. Yeah. We always have free will. It's always our our individual choices. Nobody ever comes in and, and makes us choose one thing rather than another. But yes, there are some storylines or ways that, uh, that uh, would be, Say, in this case, for the larger conscious system, there would be a lower entropy process rather than a higher entropy process because information systems like to evolve toward lower entropy, not higher entropy. So there may be things like that that the system would try to set up, but it may send something up. But if we don't make the right choices, it just may not work out that way. So things aren't imposed on us, but yes, some things could be, could be uh, set up for us to deal with. But it'll only do that if it doesn't show, you know, if there's no way for us to notice that it's been set up, that it isn't just a natural event that happens. So you can have things like that, but then it's just up to the system of what it wants to do with this virtual reality. This is a trainer. This virtual reality is an entropy reduction trainer for individuated units of consciousness. And as a trainer for us evolving our consciousness, if the system says, well, we you know, we could really get more uh, more effective uh, evolution here for with our consciousness if added something else. Then it might add that something else might be part of what happens in the future. It could it could do that. But then when we get to that point, we're going to make our free will choices about what we do with it, and we may do what it expects or we may not.
0: I see. So uh, are there individual units of consciousness that are outside the virtual reality that are not playing? That are yes. helping with that or, or that are watching yes. what's happening? Yeah.
1: Yeah, consciousness is a much bigger thing than just this virtual reality. You have this you have the the um, the larger system, okay, the larger conscious system, and it has a lot of individuated units of consciousness, and the idea was to evolve the quality of that consciousness or lower the entropy of that consciousness is the same thing. And to do that it devised this virtual reality, which would create choices that were very meaningful, choices that were very significant, choices that had consequences. Because you learn from from the choices you make. You evolve according to the choices that you make. You grow up. You change your quality by your choices. But all the players didn't have to go join this particular virtual reality. There's more than one. There's lots of virtual realities out there. There's a set of them that uh, I have personally visited. That's probably, you know, maybe uh, close to a dozen that I visited. That are what I call tight rule sets, like our virtual reality here. We call the physical universe by tight rule sets. I mean, the rule set is is um, highly constrained. Everything, like in our reality, everything has a causality. That causality that we call it a physical causality. That's the rule set creates all that physical. So the causality or the rule sets, physics and chemistry and biology and all that stuff is part of the rule sets. It's the nature of the way that the virtual reality has to work according to these ro- rules. So there are but, other But are you are saying that these realities. other
0: virtual realities have rule sets that might be different from ours? Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah a so lot they're of
0: just as real as our physical
1: exactly. reality? They, they may have most of the virtual realities. There's literally hundreds of virtual realities. Matter of fact, when you interact in this system, you'll get, it'll generate single-player virtual realities just for you, just to go experience in, or multiple. You and five other people can go experience. And in, in virtual realities that are basically made up on the fly for you. So there's lots of virtual realities, but only, I, well, from my own experience, only a few of them have rule sets real tight, that make them like a physical space, like a dream reality. When you dream, you're actually getting data, getting information, and making choices in another virtual reality. When you die here, your avatar dies, you end up becoming aware in another virtual reality. So there, everything is a virtual. All realities are virtual realities. The only. So are visual-
0: they? Are they stacked? Like uh, when you do, your avatar dies here, are you in another virtual reality that is kind of above the base level of consciousness? Is that what
1: no, you're saying? No, no, they're not stacked like that. They're, okay. They're, they're more in an array rather than it's not like a Venn diagram where everything's inside <laughs> everything else. It's more uh, of an array where there's lots of different choices in virtual realities. So. The thing is, the only thing is fundamentals consciousness. Everything else is a virtual reality. So the, the, the simplest virtual reality is just a reality in which there are communication protocols defined so that this piece of consciousness can communicate with that piece of consciousness. That requires a, a, a you know, communication protocols set up, vocabulary set up, and syntax set up, and then they can communicate with each other. Virtual reality is basically a rule set that defines interaction. You see, if you have a rule mm. set that defines the possible interaction of consciousness, then that, is, that defines a virtual reality. Now, if the rule set is really complex, like the one that defines our reality, then we call it a physical reality. It seems physical because the rule set defines every detail of, it, of every interaction that happens here. In a dream reality... Not the case. In the dream reality, you can just hop up in the air and go flying if you like. (laughs) You can flip from one thing, to you can teleport, you can pop out of this reality and into some other reality. You don't have a tight physics up there and and biology and chemistry that that forces you into a very um, precise set of possibilities. There, there's lots of possibilities, but they're all just virtual realities and every one of them is just as real. As any other And so the, the other ones
0: are also uh, multiplayer virtual realities like this with other beings. Is, is they, that what you're they saying? They
1: can be. They can be multiplayer. Uh, you know, like like the reality I call the transition reality. When your when your avatar dies here, the consciousness that's making choices for that avatar uh, has to reintegrate with its with its um, iuoc its source. I don't want to get too. Detailed here because people won't follow my acronyms, so I'll try to explain it <laughs> otherwise. It has to reintegrate with the next level up, with the consciousness, and that reality, this transition reality, is a multiplayer in the sense that there are other beings there, and you can interact with them, and chat with them, and you know have a discussion and whatever. They're there. Uh, sometimes when you go out of body, sometimes you will run into all sci- all kinds of other entities, but mostly going out of body is is uh, logging on to a single-player game. and, this, and this, this So are you,
0: are you not wandering around this reality? Are you in a kind of alternate virtual universe it, when you go out of body?
1: That depends. Now, if you want to uh, do things that are connected, say, to this virtual reality, you can. And then it's sort of like remote viewing. You can go out of body and you can go someplace and see what's going on at that place in this virtual reality. But you also can go out of body and go into reality systems that have nothing at all to do with this virtual reality. So you can, I think Bob called the, the first one, where you're, where you're doing something that's associated with this virtual reality we call the physical universe. He called that locale one, I think. And then he made a locale two and a locale three. And these are all kind of different, um, uh, well, in his word, it would be spaces that you can get into. But it's really r- different reality frames.
0: Right. And that's different from, you know, the kind of idea of parallel universes, which split off.
1: Right. Very different from that. You see, mine is probabilistic. And this idea of having parallel universes um, is an idea that was created in order to save materialism, in order to give a material material, solution to a problem. Okay, So if you have the problems of non-locality then that we have in, in, uh, in modern physics, if we have uh, the paranormal things that have been studied and are, are, are just normal things, actually, that aren't understood yet, they are from my model, but from regular physics, they're not. But anyhow, when you have those kinds of things, then the only way that you can kind of save your bacon if you're a materialist and stay and keep that materials idea is if you have these parallel universes. That okay, there's a universe where everything that can possibly happen, happens. So if I scratch my head with my right hand instead of the left, ah, a whole new universe goes off where Tom Campbell scratched his head with his right hand instead of his left. And another universe where he scratched his head with his left hand. So that's their idea. That way they have the ensemble of everything that could possibly happen actually happening in physical universes. Well, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine every time an electron you know, flips from spin up to spin down, you need a whole new universe? Can you imagine how many universes you're splitting off and these are all physical universes like ours? It just becomes a ridiculous problem as far as a practicality goes, even if it is something that you can say conceptually. So theoretically, you know, you can make this up, and it solves the problem and keeps everything material. But it's ridiculous in the sense of actually implementing it doesn't make <laughs> sense. Now, in my story, in my idea, you still have all the things that could possibly happen, but they're just in probability. Not, they've not been actualized. You see, they're not actually being computed just like in the Sims all sorts of things could happen you could decide to get up and and slap somebody in the Sims you know that's a that's an action that could happen and if you did that you'd get a reaction if you don't do that then you won't get that reaction so there's consequences to your to your acts but only the things you actualize will be the things that that server's going to going to you know Save. It's at server. It's, it's going, going to, to record, be I guess, right? It's yeah. going to record. That's the fact of what happened. Not yeah. all the possible things you could have happened. All the rest of it exists in probability and possibility, but it's not ever actualized. Well, that's my scheme is that, yes, there's everything that could happen and the probability that it might and everything that did happen or everything that, that could have happened in the past and the probability that it would And within that, there's this history thread of what actually did happen, what was actualized. So I have all of the same information that many worlds, many parallel universes have, but I have it without breaking the bank as far as computation goes. It's all sitting there as possibility that's not being rendered. It's not being computed. It's just possibility. And that way, it costs nothing. It's just something that choices could could uh, you know create, but if you don't make those choices, then they just sit there. So they take up zero resources.
0: Right. So they're just probabilities, and you have information economy in this case. You yes. don't need to store all yes. these different parallel universes. They're, they right. can just be expressed as equations or as. Uh, code rather than data right <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: they're just possibilities and they don't the possibilities don't even have to be expressed in in anything other than the, these this code and these equations have these possibilities
0: yeah you know, makes sense but
1: you, but you don't have to you don't have to exercise them or or uh, go through any of them they're just they're just there you know it's like uh having an equation for a parabola or something. Well, you may draw one on a little piece of paper and that's fine, but actually that equation produces points on, you know, that would cover a bigger paper than, you know, than the size of uh, the universe, you know, it, uh, it would, it, you know, but all that's just potential, you know, you don't have to compute every point that could possibly be there because that would, that would be, that would be non, non-practical. You just compute what you need. And use that and all the rest days as potential. So that's the way I have basically all the same information that that the many worlds has. I just have it in a nice uh, probabilistic form that does not tie up any bits or anything. I don't have a whole, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of universes being spawned every microsecond.
0: Right. Makes sense. Well, you know, there are so many directions we could take the conversation in, and we're running a a little out of time. So there's a couple of areas that I always get asked about that I'd like to run by you as well. Uh, The first is, you know, what's your thought on UFO sightings and people seeing aliens? I mean, are are these beings from other universes or other virtual realities? Are they, uh, you know, Uh, from other planets in our virtual reality are they figments of our imagination what's your take on that
1: okay um there's an interesting thing here that i don't know if you've heard me talk about or not that i'd like to stay first because that will kind of set the tone for what comes after to answer your question and that is if you've if you've heard of the the fermi paradox sure fermi fermi paradox says where are they you know where are these ets (laughs) and it has a it has a, uh, an assumption that given very sub-light speed, given that we are in a much newer part of the universe and there's another part of the universe that's about a billion years older than us, that if life took root in this older part of the universe, then that life would have been evolving a billion years further than us, uh, and that's a lot of that's a lot of lead, you know, that's a lot of uh, lead time for developing technology and other things yep. Yep. Okay, that they said, even then, OK, seize the speed limit, sub sub uh, sub light speeds. These people fill up their planet or their solar system or whatever with people and they just keep on having more babies. So they just keep expanding. And these are just typical models that you can use for, you know, population growth and so on. They should have been through here a long time ago, even at sub-light speeds, just by filling up the space with population and having to move to the next spot. So the, the, the uh, thing that Fermi said, the math says this place should be crowded. Everything that's possibly inhabited anywhere in this part of the universe that we're in should be full. Should be almost a carrying capacity. Okay, everything, you know, our, our moon, you know, all, you know, other other planets, other other uh, things in this in our neighborhood ought to all be pretty much full. But we don't see them. So they said, where where are they? What's the problem here? So if you look at it as a virtual reality, you can get a very strong solution to the Fermi paradox. And that is, in a virtual reality, you only compute what the players demand, right? The players make measurements. They look at something or whatever, and you have to compute what it is they see. So Mm -hmm. players are measurement takers. The computer gives them the results, and that is the reality. So now how much of our universe really needs to be populated, well, that depends on our, this is our virtual reality, our universe, our physical universe. how much of that needs to be populated? Well, that depends on how many seats the larger conscious system has in this virtual reality game. All so right how many on, players in this game? Yeah, how many players? how many seats yep. that can it does it want to maintain? So right now it's got about uh, what seven and a half billion seats here on this planet Earth, okay now. If this is a this is a, a trainer, as I said, it's an entropy reduction trainer for consciousness. And if you have a trainer that's helping consciousness evolve, if you add more and more to it, every time you add another player, you've had all the overhead of having to send a data stream, calculate a data stream for that particular individual player, right? And receive that player's input, their choices and Compute consequences and send those back to the player, so you've got a lot of overhead to feed that player. And the point of the game is is evolution. So where do you you draw that line where adding another player is no longer worth the overhead of feeding it? You see, you're going to get to that point somewhere. You can say, well, 7.5 billion of us enough. If we had 7.5 billion plus 1, would the system get that much more benefit that it's worth feeding that one, this data stream, and doing all the calculations? So you see, there's going to be this curve, like there is for all things like this statistical, where it gets better and better as you add more people, better and better, because more and more people are evolving more quickly. And past a certain point, not so much. After that, it costs more to support that next person than it's really worth as far as system growth goes. So if that's the case, and if, let's say, $7.5 is plenty of seats maybe even more seats than it needs, but it's kind of stuck with that because we just keep making more and more seats here with (laughs) our biology with the rule set, then it's no need for it to have anything else. So where are they? Well, there isn't anybody there. Now, I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm just saying this is a possibility. There is nobody there. And right away, the materials would say, oh, but that's ridiculous. You have this whole universe All of this universe for just one little measly planet and one little tiny sun. So you're going to just use one ten millionth of this universe and the rest of it's all a waste? Of course not in a virtual reality. None of that's a waste. It never is computed. The only thing that's computed is what the players right here on Earth take measurements of, what they see. And if they look out there in a big telescope, well, the system will calculate what, you know, do a random draw from the probability distribution of possibilities, and that's what they see. All right, then they turn that off, or they go home, or they go eat lunch, and it stops computing that. It only has to compute that when somebody's looking at it. That's the way virtual realities work. So all that rest of that universe is not wasted at all, it's just never computed. But so could it be that look,
0: there are some players on another planet also that are kind of looking out and maybe they see us as
1: well? Or are, oh, it could be if they need yeah. more, if the system needs more seats, it could populate <laughs> as many populable you know places on this universe as it wanted to. Let's say it needs a hundred billion seats, and uh, that makes it evolve quicker. Well, yeah. then it could evolve you know a whole lot of other places. It's not going to get a hundred billion on this planet, so <laughs> it would have other planets, other places, and it could do that. The point is, is how many seats do you need before the overheads, you know, uh, cost more than the benefit? So that's the key. And if you kind of think about that for a while, you realize you probably don't need 100 billion seats. You're not getting that much value out of 100 billion that you probably wouldn't get out of 1 billion. So if that's the case, then that's why we don't see them is because they're not there. We're here alone. And all of this universe is not wasted. The only part of it that's ever computed are the things that we, who are living right here on this planet, see and what we measure. And we don't measure much of that at all. And when we do, it's only for a very short period of time. A camera, you know, like a Hubble, <laughs> takes a look, takes a picture, measures it, that's it. It's not computed anymore. It was only computed for the, for the time that that Hubble was looking at it. Now, if you look back at that thing, the system will remember and they'll give you that same thing because once measured, it stays in this reality. Once it comes into this reality, just like the particle going through a slit, and once it gets measured, oh here, we know what slit it went through, now it stays in this reality. But until it gets measured, it's not in this reality. And you only see it when somebody looks at somebody, some player gets the data in their data stream. So see how this simplifies lots of things. It simplifies the, the many worlds down to something that's very manageable. It simplifies, um, you know, the Fermi paradox concept in that it gives a very rational answer that says, well, you know, maybe seven and a half billion seats is enough. Okay, it has other virtual realities like this one that are also um, uh, very tight rule sets, and I've been in, like I say, a, you know, half a dozen or more of those. Actually, somewhere between a half a dozen and a dozen of those. And, you know, it's got those, it's got that population. So we're not the only one. It's got other virtual realities running that are populated sort of the way we are. Um, So I don't know that it needs a lot of seats here.
0: Yeah. I mean, can you talk about some of those other?
1: Yes. Virtual okay. realities.
0: Just for a few minutes, because then we'll uh, have another question about your experiments and then okay. we'll wrap up. <laughs>
1: yeah. All right. I can. Let me uh, go with Let me answer your question. though. The, what about yeah. the e, what about the ETs that people see and uh, yeah, and, uh, and all the stuff that they get here? Um, you will add to that. What about the uh, crop circles and things like that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: OK, I think most of this is not done in physical space. But it's done in mental space. In other words, people see things. Well, when you see things, what's that? It's information, right? You're getting information. Remember, yeah. reality is just information. So if the computer wants to send you a little green man with pointy ears, you know, uh, you know, wearing a pink tutu, you know, doing the rumba, then it can send you that picture, and you'll see it. It's just data. It doesn't mean that something physical is there. You just interpret it as physical, because that's the way you've learned to interpret the data. So it's all the things we see is just information that we get from the computer individually. So once you get that concept, you see it's real easy to see all kinds of strange things without causing any big, uh, uh, you know, big problems as far as physics or reality goes. So crop circles. Well, the system likes to stir the pot and wake us up to show us that reality is, is uh, not so buttoned down as just, you know, a materialist would have a say. So it can take, uh, you know, 10 or 20 acres of land and put a very precise design in it overnight, you know, with no lights and no noise. And who did it? Well, we can't make any sense of the idea that we physical people here on Earth did it, because that would be pretty hard to do that in a night with no lights and no noise. It would probably take a team of 300 surveyors, you know, three weeks just to lay out that pattern in the the field. So how does that happen? Well, if we can't come up with an answer, our knee-jerk reaction is, oh, it must be the aliens. Well, (laughs) you see, so then we say the aliens did it and so on. So if somebody saw a spaceship land and next to their field, next to their house, and they go out and look, there's five little spots of burnt grass where, where its landing pads were, that's easy. The little spots of burnt grass is just information. Everything that you see in this reality is just data, and the system can send it to you to help you see a bigger picture of the nature of reality, so you're not stuck in the rut of Of everything being you know simple and straightforward and even ETS help open people's minds to bigger pictures even if ETS are supposedly physical coming from this dimension now the one other thing that I would and well I'll skip that the one other thing I would say is that it is possible to go to have other entities from other reality frames come and visit here I know that's possible because I can go to other reality frames and visit there. When I tell you I've been to, you know, to a dozen of these things, I've been there. I've looked at them and some of them I've actually gone in and taken a body and interact there as one of them. You can do Mm -hmm. that, but you have to get permission and you have to work through the system because you have to be put in the data stream for them. And others, you can just go and kind of be a voyeur. You know, you can, you can interact with them telepathically, but you don't really, you can't shake their hand. And other than that, you can just get telepathic communication. You don't necessarily see anything. So there's different levels in which you can visit these places. Uh, so that's possible as well. So sometimes there may be somebody here who really belongs, you know, who's really uh, has, a, has an avatar, someplace else in some of the virtual reality who's just visiting but when you get that it's not going to be something that is uh, uh, What uh, uh, it's not going to be something strange or a big deal It's because if you make a big deal while you're there doing that you'll lose your ability to do it like I say you can only do it if the system works with you and if you create a mess while you're there and you create problems, then the system says no thanks. You you know you lose your hall pass. And you <laughs> your
0: passport, and you can't go yeah, into there. right. And you can't go there the anymore.
1: Yeah, <laughs> unless the system wants to stir something up. And there's also, of course, besides that, there's also NPCs that can come here. You can have the system has a special need for a cameo role for somebody to show up and pull Timmy out of the well. Then uh, you know that that character can show up and disappear. So there's some of those walking around as well. And it's just played by the system. That's all. It's like being in, in uh, World of Warcraft and all the monsters are NPCs. They're all being played by the computer. Some of the characters are being played by the computer as well. So, but they're a very, very, very small minority. So all these things are possible. Okay. So we skipped over a whole lot of things. I've just, yeah. touched, I just touched pieces of it. And I'm, I know that listeners, I sound like I'm a raving maniac because I don't have time to really derive all the logic in, in, uh, behind all of this, but it actually well. does have a logical base to it.
0: Yeah, and it's really fascinating. And and for listeners, you know, they should really check out your your books uh, and your many other uh, talks that you have online as well. I think to get more details in this. But one of the areas they always ask me about is uh, the experiments that you crowdfunded a few years ago and that are ongoing to show that we're inside a simulation. And you know, I often get asked that a lot too. What you know, what evidence is there? Uh, that we're in a simulation, and can we run experiments to figure that out? And I say, well, Tom Campbell's already started that process.
1: So Yes, I do. You know, I, have a, I have a set of experiments that are, on, that are in the process of being put together. They're being done at Cal Polytech in Southern California, Pomona, I think. And um, right now, where we are is still trying to put all the pieces together. And We're still buying equipment, setting it up in the lab, finding out what works and what doesn't. And then sometimes you have to go buy another piece of equipment because we bought the wrong one. You know, it's one of it's one of those things that we are uh, um, putting it all together. It's a slow process because um, the people doing it are not people who have done this these experiments. You know, already three or four times. These are people that have never done these experiments before. They're capable of doing them. They've got the space. They they have uh, you know what's needed. We're buying the equipment. Um, but it just takes time to set them up. A, a, a truly good quantum physics experiment is not a trivial thing to set up. It yeah. is very, very simple theoretically. You know, it's easy to talk about it and point pictures at a little diagram, <laughs> but it's not so easy to actually make that happen in hardware in the real world. That's a, that's a harder thing. You're talking about things that you, you have to measuring time in the nanoseconds and you're looking at individual photons. And it, all of that is just a bit tricky in the lab, but we're doing it, we're making progress. Um, Farbod is a, is a guy who's heading up the, the program there. And I talk to him every week, he tells me what he's doing and what we have to buy next and uh, what's going on. And we are making slow progress, chugging right along. Now what those experiments will do is they will create uh, I should maybe differentiate here. A lot of people say, "Well, can you prove it?" Well, science isn't about proof. Like uh, Dean Radin says, "Proof is for for mathematics and whiskey. <laughs> it's not. It's not for science. Science is about evidence." Okay. Okay. We gave up the idea that science was about proof back when uh, we had Newton's laws that were going to be laws that would always be laws and they would always hold, and then we found out that eh, they really weren't laws. They were just you know, concepts that worked in one region of reality but didn't work so well elsewhere. So we stopped naming things laws. And that's the same thing as saying we're not, we stopped talking about proof and absolute things. And we talk about evidence. So these experiments will lend strong evidence that this is a virtual reality. And it will lead, it also lend uh, fairly strong evidence, not quite as strong, but still Pretty strong evidence that consciousness is the computer. And I've got five quantum mechanics experiments. If you go to, um, I have a little nonprofit that took all the money from the crowdfunding and put it in a nonprofit. I did that and I put every penny in there. And I, I did that because nonprofits have very strict rules about what they do with their money, and they have very strict accounting about who, you know, who gets what and who can, you know, and what you can spend that money on. It must be spent on the stuff that the nonprofit said it was going to do. So it uh, can't be used for anything else. So I have this nonprofit. And that nonprofit has, I think, the uh, what I call an RFI, Request for Information, that I sent out to a lot of physicists to see if they were interested in doing the experiments. And this RFI actually shows you the experiment. It talks about the experiment, Does gives you a little diagram, tells you what it's supposed to show and how it's supposed to do that. And I've got that. It's only about ten pages long. So if anybody's interested in those experiments, go to uh, www.cusac.org. And once you get there, look around, you know, play with the tabs or whatever until you find that that uh, RFI. And you'll get a lot of detail for that experiment. Now, you actually want to hear me talking about the experiments. I presented these experiments in 2016. In uh, at a meeting at LA, Los Angeles, California. And if you go to my YouTube, yeah, don't be overwhelmed. I know I've got like thousands of hours of YouTube up there, but, but look for, um, I think it was called, uh, MBT LA 2016. So if you look for that title, do a search for it, up will pop this thing with, uh, You know, with probably uh, 14 hours of uh, of video, you know, more than you can probably stand. But I go (laughs) through and I I give a talk about physics from the MBT, from the My Big Toe viewpoint. Okay. How to, there's lots of things, there's lots of little trails that tell you that this is a virtual reality. And I talk about seven or eight or nine of them and say, well, if this was a virtual reality, It should work like this, and we should see this sort of thing. And then we look and say, well, there it is. We do have that sort of thing. So I do that with a bunch of points there. I talk about um, consciousness as the creator and how physics comes out of that and how these experiments work. And all of that's done in in MBTLA 2016. So it was a a two-day talk. And at the end of the talk, the last day, I talked about, what does it matter? Why do we care? You know, what's the point of this and what's the bigger picture in which this actually has significance? Because most people say, yeah, physics. okay, quantum mechanics. I don't think I'm going to look at that. You know, that's some esoteric field that I probably wouldn't understand anyway. But there is some real significance here to everybody, real significant logical implications of this theory to everyday life. And I talk about those at the end.
0: Yeah, and I, I definitely recommend people go and check out your YouTube channel. And also, I think the slides from that talk in L.A. are up on your website, right? Is it mybigtoe.com with the dashes in between the words?
1: Yes. that um, that uh, I think that's there, too, for those those slides, I believe, are there. And I think they're probably on the CUSAC site as well, but I'm not yeah, sure about that. And
0: they delve into a lot more detail on the experiments and things we've talked about here, like the Zeno effect and uh, – you know, the history database and things like that as well. Yeah. Well, Tom, we're, we're, we're out of time here, but uh, I know there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, background behind the things you talked about, and there's a lot of depth and areas that we haven't been able to get into. So I hope you'll uh, join me again on the podcast sometime, and maybe we'll just focus on one of these areas.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to do a, a whole thing, because after all, this is really a theory of everything. So it's a, it's a completely remake of science as we understand it. And a completely different view of reality as most people, you know, think about it. It's very different than most of the other virtual reality ideas that are out there. And to try to talk about the whole thing, you know, even in two or three days is difficult, much less, you know, an hour and a half. So. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, thanks for uh, attempting to <laughs> to do that with me. And, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. And. Oh, uh, you- you know, the websites again, uh, can you just give the websites one more time for CUSAC yeah, and your regular website?
1: Yeah, the CUSAC, if you just put in CUSAC.org, C-U-S-A-C, Center for the Unification of Consciousness and Physics, or Science and Consciousness. That's it, CUSAC, S-A-C, Science and Consciousness. Uh, that's CUSAC.org, and my uh, website is www.mybigtau.org dot com and that should work but if not put hyphens between the my the big and the toe and, uh, and that'll, that'll work and then the last place is YouTube and YouTube I have like thousands and thousands of hours maybe I don't know five, six 600, 800 videos there so that will overwhelm you but just find something that's interesting and do it very slowly a little bit at a time it's not uh, it, uh, it doesn't actually bite back And the last thing I'd say is the books you can get for free on Google Books.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, and the book is My Big Toe,
1: My Big Theory of Everything, TOE. And and if you're interested in exploring uh, the larger reality, exploring consciousness, out-of-body, remote viewing, healing, all that stuff, I give seminars on that, and I've put them up for free too on YouTube. So if you'd like to join one of those, uh, or actually watch one of those. The last one I did was one I gave at TMI. It wasn't a TMI program. It was just me giving it at TMI using their facility. And that one was last November. I've done several. So you want to find the latest one and you can go through that and get all the instruction and whatever, everything you need to know to, to do those things or to, to build your capability to do those things.
0: That's great. Well, once again, Tom, thanks so much for, uh, for being on the show, and uh, I've been a big fan of yours for a while, so so glad we could have this conversation, and I'm sure we'll follow up again soon.
1: Great. Thank you, Riz. I, I appreciate the uh, invitation and uh, the chance to be here and talk with your audience.